may be seated. Well, it's, it's great to be here uh, to preach from God's Word uh, this morning. Um, if you're here in Sunday school, um, you heard that we are, I'm a, my name is Ben Jensen and a, a missionary in Japan. My family, my wife, and our three sons now are serving in Nagoya, Japan, Japan's third largest city. Um, and our plan is to go back in January, if we can get all of our paperwork ready to go, um, go back in January for another four years. And I, as I was thinking about all the transitions of missionary life, uh, I, was re I thought of this uh, incident. When we moved back um, from Japan to America and j just been back in the country about a month, uh, one day we were driving to church and our nine-year-old son, um, on the way to church, he, he said, Dad, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, sure, what is it? He said, Dad, why does everyone in America wear their shoes on at church? It's so weird. <laughs> Many are the transitions of, of missionary life and cultural transitions for missionary kids. So would love to have your prayers for uh, our family as we um, get back to Japan and have so many transitions uh, before going back there, hopefully in January. Uh, Please turn with me now um, to our scripture passage, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light let's pray father god we are so thankful for your word and for um, what it teaches us about you and also what it teaches us about ourselves and Father God, we pray that as, as we study your word, that your Holy Spirit would be moving in our hearts and in our minds, applying it uh, to our world and our situation and to our very souls. Um, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back when some friends of ours were preparing to join a church planning team in Tokyo, uh, there was a news article of a Japanese lady who lived in the very neighborhood they were headed to, who jumped from her fourth-story apartment building. She was very, very badly injured, but survived. And when she was asked later why she jumped, she said that she desperately needed a break and didn't know how else to get it. Many in Japan are exhausted Japanese have a strong work ethic and their dedication to their companies is renowned. But that commitment combined with their job expectations carries a hefty price. Companies are demanding and require full dedication and seemingly all of their employees' energy on a weekly basis. So much so that the number one hobby on the weekend for adult males is sleeping. 
On Tuesday mornings, until recently, I've had a Zoom Bible study with Japanese college students. And just recently, one of our students was commenting on how they're apprehensive to enter a Japanese company because they know what will be expected of them. Japan, in so many ways, is such a beautiful place and seems like an ideal society. And yet, there are so many hurting in Japan. There's something called hikikomori, or hermit anxiety, anxiety disorder. It's a social disorder where hundreds of thousands of people, some people think up to a million young people, uh, usually young people, feel so hurt and rejected by society that they simply decide not to participate anymore. They drop out of school and don't come out of their houses and sometimes not even out of their rooms. In extreme cases, families don't see their son or daughter for years, even though they were all the while living at their house. Food is left for the kid who will come out when the rest of the family leaves for the day. Oftentimes, this order is due to deep hurt or caused by bullying. I asked a good friend of ours about this social phenomenon, and this Japanese friend said in her high school class, every morning attendance was taken, and every day for four years, 32 names were read. But never once were all 32 there. In fact, the biggest her class ever was, was 28. There were four kids whose names were called every day, but were never there because they were hikikomori. They had dropped out and left society. I read a book about hikikomori before going to Japan, and I wondered when I arrived if I would ever hear about the situations from people I would know. Sure enough, Six months in, a mutual friend of ours told me about the daughter of one of our language teachers who was hikikomori. The same Japanese friend asked me later if I would be willing to meet with one of her students who is recovering from hikikomori, who was studying English and also interested in Christianity. Well, of course I accepted. We had multiple meetings scheduled, but we never met. Each time, the struggling young man canceled because he felt like he just couldn't get together. More recently, another Japanese man confided in me and a coworker and asked for prayer for his young adult son, who feels like he cannot leave the house. The country we live in and serve in is hurting and broken. And certainly, the country we're living in now, America, is hurting and broken. You only need to watch the news for five minutes to see the brokenness and hurt surrounding us. In today's passage, we're going to look at Christ's invitation for rest. As a culture, we are in desperate need for rest. For our bodies, yes. For our souls, absolutely. On a break from writing this sermon, I saw a friend's social media post of a meme with a picture from the 1980s blockbuster film, Back to the Future. Maybe you saw it. It has a picture of Doc explaining to Marty McFly about how to operate the DeLorean time machine and says, listen carefully, Marty. Whatever you do, do not set the year to 2020. 
It's funny because this meme captures how most of us feel about 2020. On the whole, it seemed like a disaster. Our year kicked off with the global pandemic killing hundreds of thousands of people in America and worldwide and altering almost everyone's way of life. Travel was brought to a halt. Businesses were closed. Nationwide, kid, kids had to abruptly start studying remotely from home and parents had to figure out how to make that work and how to manage their kids seven days a week, 24 hours a day while facing limitations on what they could do outside the house. Sports seasons, from the amateur to the professional, were brought to an end. Vacations canceled, family reunions canceled, proms and graduations canceled. Weddings that had been dreamt of since childhood were significantly limited and altered. As time wore on, businesses had to close their doors permanently, putting scores of people out of work. People became lonely. We missed getting together freely with others. Many elderly and people with health risks have had even greater degrees of isolation. Some contracting the virus have even had to die in hospitals alone. With people both isolated and frustrated, domestic abuse went up, and so did suicide numbers. Personally, my family has looked forward to this year since we left Japan five years ago. We love our, Jap our jobs in Japan, but at the same time, we miss so much of being back in America and have relished the chance for one year in eight to enjoy life in America before another four years abroad. But things have changed. Family reunions, weddings, vacation, school for the kids, sporting games, birthday parties, constantly trying to figure out who we can see and who we can't see. And this all seems trivial compared to what others have lost. But since it was our one chance in eight years, it feels like a big loss to us. It all feels like a bit of a blur, and honestly, I don't think it will be until we we return to Japan that the loss really sinks in. And then in the midst of dealing with the pandemic, our country hit another tragic set of events, a race relations crisis. Several tragic deaths of several black people left many in, our, in the black community hurting, reminding them of the long history of injustice they experienced in the past and still feel like, to some degree, they are experiencing today. And this led to protests um, by those in the black community and those grieving alongside them. And though many wanted these protests uh, to be peaceful, um, some, termed, some were very angry and violent, and this led to the destruction of cities, destruction of already fragile businesses, and the taking of more innocent life, including more innocent black life. It was really just all so tragic. And of course, this has been a pivotal presidential election year, and so every tragedy or crisis, whether it's with regards to pandemic, race relations, or wildfires, has been highly politicized. On the news, on social media, sports games, and even perhaps around the dinner table, people have been making statements in these times, it seems like people cannot simply grieve the tragedy itself, but the cause, who to blame, what this means, and how to move forward is hotly contested. 
you cannot get away from the controversy, and it's exhausting. Regarding COVID, my family for many months tried to exercise caution to keep others healthy. Uh, to not only keep others healthy, but with my wife pregnant, we needed to be prudent. With multiple miscarriages in the past and one of our older sons having already had multiple rare and serious diseases and surgeries, we as a family were fatigued of medical drama. And so we were particularly careful the three weeks before our baby was due. But in spite of our efforts of caution, three days before my wife was to give birth, she tested positive for COVID along with our two older sons, leaving us wondering many things. How would she give birth while being sick? Would I be able to go to the birth or would she have to go alone to the hospital? And what should we do with the kids who have COVID if I was allowed to go to the hospital? Would, would others get sick if they watched them? Would I get sick too? What about the baby's health? How do we manage things when we get home from the hospital trying to keep the baby healthy? How does Julie get enough rest to recover with COVID with a baby who needs to eat every two hours? It was a stressful couple of weeks. I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm ready for a break. 2020 has been a hard year and I'm weary. And many, many people have had it much harder than I have. Now I believe in all my heart with God's sovereignty and that he will redeem these things and use them for his glory and our good. And my family experienced again God's sweet, God's sweet provision in the midst of crisis. But nevertheless, all of us here need a break. And while we cannot leave our world, Christ offers us something today that we desperately need. You need it more than you realize. You need rest. Not a total escape, but peace in the midst of a storm. Rest in the midst of disappointment, loss, grief, injustice, lament, uncertainty, need. We've been through tough times, and we need to take care. We need rest, not just physical, but the kind that Christ holds out before us. Rest for our souls. Passing on this offer will be like passing on an oasis in the midst of a desert. We need rest and recovery, especially in tragic times like these. We need rest of the truest kind. If you are weary and dry, you need clean, fresh water, not polluted water that will ultimately make you sick and leave you worse. Today, let's consider Christ's simple yet profound invitation for soul-nourishing rest unto himself. Without listening to what Christ is offering here, it's going to be hard to come out of 2020 with a healthy heart. Well, as we consider this passage, look again at verse 28. Jesus says, come to me. This invitation is unique, bold, and beautifully simple. First, it's unique. Jesus is the only prophet or re religious figure to say that he himself is the answer to your problem. 
Augustine of Hippo, who was born in the fourth century, was a learned man studying with the best teachers and reading the greatest writings of civilization. And later, he would in fact write the world's first autobiography. But reflecting on his coming to Christ, he writes this. I've read in Plato and Cicero, sayings wise and beautiful, but never in either. Come to me, all who labor and, heavy, and are heavy laden. Christ's invitation unto himself is unique. Nobody else beckons humanity to themselves as the answer to their problems like Jesus. How many of us, when we are having an issue with, a, with cell phone service or something like that, like to be put through a never-ending list of computerized prompts that never really get to what the issue is? No, we want to talk to someone. We want a person on the other end of the line, a competent person who will listen to our problem and fix the issue. Having a philosophy or religion to hold on to is not the same as having a person. And that's what we have in Christ. Not a, just a cold philosophy or distant religion, but a person. Christ's invitation is, come to, is to come to himself, a person. And yet, he's not like any other person that we've ever experienced. The person of Christ is also the Lord God himself. All other religions point to someone or something else. But Jesus doesn't point in some other direction, but welcomes us into his own arms as a solution. Not so with Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Zoroaster, Joseph Smith, or others who point to a philosophy or a deity. Jesus' invitation is unique because he is saying he is a solution to your problems. His invitation is also pretty bold. Do you re remember the story of Jairus recorded in the fifth chapter of Mark's Gospel? Jairus comes to Jesus because his daughter is dying. He's desperate, and he comes believing that Jesus can heal his daughter. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus agrees to go to his home where his daughter is fighting for her life. But before they reach his home, they are approached by one of the workers at Jairus' house, meeting him on the way, and he tells him the terrible news that his daughter has already died. Jesus then turns to the man and says, do not fear, only believe. That's pretty bold. As one pastor said, you have to be pretty sure of yourself to a man who is just, to say that to a man who has just lost his child. But Jesus is bold. He told Jairus to put his trust in him, to trust him to raise his child from the dead, which he did indeed do. And he does the same thing here. He is equally bold, telling the weary and oppressed to come to him as the solution to their problems. No other sane person does that. Other prophets point to someone or something else because they know that they aren't God, but not Jesus. He invites us to himself because he knows he is the answer. His invitation is also refreshingly simple. Tired, weary, Depressed, angry, hurt, not sure how to proceed in life? 
come to Jesus. It's a simple solution. If you're weary, come to me, Jesus says. It's not a religion of never-ending rules that you must keep to earn favor with God, as are in some other religions. Nor is it an invitation like the rules of the Pharisees in Jesus' time. The Pharisees, like most of the Israelites, were troubled by the Roman control over them. In response to this problem, they conclude that God must be allowing this as a judgment on them because of the people's sins. And so to, to fix that judgment, people needed to be more holy, they taught. But here's where they went really wrong. Instead of looking inward and confessing and turning away from their own sin, they simply assumed that they were okay before God and looked outward at what other people were doing. And they added to God's law to make sure that no one broke it. Not only is this exhausting, is it exhausting to keep up this kind of tight legalism, but it also misses the point. They should have been grieved by their own hard hearts, repented, and come back to God. The way forward is to come to Christ. How are you today? Do you realize your need for rest? What's troubling you? Where are you going with these problems? Come to Christ. And we have to ask, if you're not going to Jesus as the main answer of your problem, who or what are you going to to try to answer to be the answer of your problems? Yes, we should sometimes enlist the help of a friend, pastor, counselor, and or doctor to help us with our problems. But these people, although they may certainly be helpful for you, are no substitute for a savior. You need a savior in putting your hope in a thing or another person who is not able to bear the weight of being your savior will be a disaster. So who is Jesus inviting to come to him in verse 28? It's the weary, those who labor and are heavy laden. People wearied by the demands or problems or injustices of the world. People weary by their own sin. People weary from trying to follow a legalistic religious system, one created by men like that of the Pharisees. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus' invitation is for all, but only those who sense their need of him will come. Only those who see the world as incredibly broken, those who know that things are not the way that they're supposed to be, neither out there or in here. Now we look at the next part of the invitation. Jesus says to come to him and do what? To take a yoke upon him or herself, to be bound to Christ. Yokes were used in agrarian settings to connect two animals so they could perform a task or mission together. Taking a, a yoke upon yourself implies servitude or in submission. Accepting the invitation to take Jesus' yoke upon yourself means that you are embracing the call to live a life of going in the same direction as Jesus, connected to him, embracing his goals, working beside him as he works. But some will object. 
bind myself to Christ, no way. There's no way I'm going to put myself under any such authority. But that's outsider talk. I understand the objection, but if that's your reaction, you're picturing being yoked to something or someone else. You're picturing binding yourself to someone who is self-seeking, proud, foolish, or does not have your best interests in mind. Someone not trustworthy. But that is not who we are talking about. We're talking about Jesus, the Christ, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God. Look at how Jesus describes himself in verse 29. For I am lowly and gentle in heart. That's quite a combination. The audacious invitation to find in him the answers to all of humanity's problems and the description of being humble and lowly in heart. I understand you don't want to serve a tyrant, but following and being linked to a servant. Now that's different. The reason you can trust him with your life is because he is gentle and lowly in heart. And for those of us who know the Lord and have tasted his goodness, we know just how wonderful it can be to be yoked to Christ. It's freeing, life-giving, and it is quite all, all right to be linked with him. Here's a few reasons why you can trust yoking yourself to Christ. Number one, you'll learn from him. We'll come back to this later. Number two, because of Jesus' attractive character throughout Scripture. Jesus is exactly the type of person you would want to trust with your life. He's wise. He understands what life is for. He's just, doing rightly and calling out evil and injustices where they are. He's patient and graciously help you work through your problems and sin. He's compassionate. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and incapable of doing wrong. These things and more are true and are reasons in themselves to trust Christ with your life. But let's focus on the reason Jesus gives here in his invitation. The first thing Jesus says about himself in verse 29 is he is gentle. Gentleness is bridled, controlled strength. It's not weakness, but it is a controlled self. Picture a horse that is approachable and easy to ride. That's gentleness. Jesus is gentle. A good friend of mine is gentle. And I remember in college and throughout his life, people flocked to him and bringing their problems to him. For they know they will get a listening ear, not be judged, and receive compassion. It's the same with Jesus, but to a greater degree. Jesus is gentle, and people flock to him with rock star-like popularity throughout the Gospels with their problems. And what's particularly noteworthy throughout the Gospel um, is the type of people who come. Desperate people, broken people, troubled people, people who have been undervalued or sometimes completely rejected by society, like the lame, the blind, Widows, lepers, the poor, women, children, prostitutes. People who were marginalized found Jesus approachable. He was gentle, 
and they knew he would be, they would be received by him. Jesus is also lowly in heart. Jesus is the Savior that serves. Serving not only by giving his life as a ransom for many on the cross, although that is huge and probably the biggest way he has served us. But he is serving in other smaller ways too. The last time his disciples eat with him before his crucifixion, we see him washing the disciples' feet. And the last time we meet, the last time he meets with his disciples before his ascension, John records them in the 21st chapter of his gospel as cooking breakfast for them on the shore when the disciples come back from fishing and find their Savior. There's something about this encounter that seems to me just incredibly thoughtful and caring. Jesus is very deliberate in modeling service. It's simply incredible to me that Jesus is taking time to cook breakfast for them. If it were me, I would probably just show up and say, ta-da, look, here I am, boom. But when Jesus comes, he's coming to serve. Jesus told his disciples, you know that the, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came to be served, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's next consider, let's consider the next two stories that follow in Matthew 12. In the first, the Pharisees scowled at the disciples for picking up grain and eating on the Sabbath. The disciples broke the life-draining uh, interpretation of the law the Pharisees set up for their society. Second, and worse yet, Jesus heals a man's withered hand on the Sabbath, but instead of celebration, his actions are met with anger, so much so that these religious leaders want to kill him. Such is the tyrannical chains of following a religion that's not based on grace, love, and service. But we see, in contrast, that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus does all the heavy lifting of work on the team. He asks us to believe in him, to pray, confess our sins, to do justly, share good news, teach what he and his apostles have already taught. He's, he's done and is doing all the hard work of sustaining and guiding the world, dying for us, changing hard hearts, teaching us the truth and more. Jesus says to come to me. He next says to take my yoke upon you. And thirdly, he says to learn from me. In Christ, you will learn what life is really for and the futility of the way you once lived. You will learn who God really is and how your understanding of him prior to knowing him was either dead wrong or very shallow. You will learn the right way to relate to him and approach him, and you will learn of your great need for him. 
And as you see your need for mercy and grace, you will be transformed by the power of forgiveness, both receiving it and extending it to others. The gospel really does change a person's life. I want you to imagine for a moment. I want you to imagine you've taken Christ up on his offer. You've come to him, been yoked to him, and you are learning from Christ. And as you continue to think and pray through the gospel's ramifications for your life, the following things happen. You no longer carry anger from others who have hurt you in the past because you have learned how to forgive them. You no longer live your life consumed by what other people think of you, trying to please others and trying to secure other people's good opinion of you. But you have learned to live for an audience of one. And since you're living for an audience of one, those hurts you receive from others don't sting, sting to the same degree as they used to. You can read or watch the news without getting angry with people you disagree with politically because you have learned that this world is not yours, but God's. He cares more about it than you do. And yes, and so yes, you stay politically involved and do good where you can and still express your opinions at times, but you've also learned to take your concerns to God in prayer and trust him. In the past, your desire for control led to anger when things seemed out of control. But when you realize you are not in control anyways, and that this is God's world, your anger cooled, and you trusted God with your concerns. You can sleep well at night because you have learned to daily entrust your worries to God who holds the whole world in his hands and is quite capable to manage our relatively small matters, tough as they may be to us personally. This used to be difficult for you, but you have found daily time in the word of God a powerful ally and coming to Christ in prayer a refuge. You are free from the burden of trying to be a self-made man or woman. You've learned to be free from the pressure of trying to create this amazing life for yourself. You were told by our culture that it was up to you to make your own life, and you were taught that your identity is to be created rather than received. But you've traded this to simply take on Christ's yoke and follow where he leads. You have an amazing identity, and you rest that the Lord will use you in powerful ways as you stay by his side. In the past, your conscience and memory was burdened by the guilt from sins, both public and private. Moments alone could be exhausting as you relieved, relived all the foolish, mean, and evil things you did. Your relationship with others were hampered by guilt and the shame you felt inside. But as your relationship with Christ developed, you learned to remember your justification and that your identity is no longer in the wrong things you've done, but in the forgiveness that is yours. And so it is easier now to spend the day alone and the wall of guilt and shame you built up between you and others has come down little by little. Coming home used to feel like anything but a break. 
You used to feel like you constantly argued with your spouse. But now you've learned from Christ to look out for the interests of others. To be humble and patient and to consider each other's feelings and points of view. And you have begun to resist your compulsion to try to win every argument. You don't always agree with your spouse on every issue now, but you have learned to be humble, peaceable, loving, and respectful in the midst of disagreement. And that has allowed space for a new sweetness in your home and life to grow. And now your home has become what it should be, a refuge. You used to fear death because you didn't really know what would happen to you when you would die. And underneath the surface of your life, there was a fear controlling your present life. Now you rest in knowing exactly what will happen to you when you die. You'll be with Christ in paradise. If you've learned these things and more, what will the result be? The result is that you will find rest for your soul. The gospel provides a rest from hurt and anger, a rest from caring so much about what other people think of you, a rest from the need of control and the anger that comes with that. You can have better sleep, a rest from worrying about your future and image, a rest from guilt, a sweeter home life, and a secure future. If you have these things, you will have rest for your soul. We still struggle with sin, but as we understand the gospel more and learn from Christ, be assured, it will bring rest. Rest will be the result from coming to, yoking to, and learning from Christ. Rest. When I think of the rest that God gives his people, one of the first things I think of is the fourth commandment. When God was making his top ten laws for the nation of Israel, one of them was the fourth, about rest. God graciously had his people who were slaves in Egypt prioritize their life correctly from the beginning. They would not be like the neighboring nations who would labor every day, but would, ha but would have to trust God to provide for them, and in turn would be given a higher quality of life, having an entire day, every week, to have a chance to rest, enjoy, worship, and to think about things that were really important. When you are discipled by Christ, you have the opportunity to trust him enough to take advantage of a Sabbath day of rest. And you, if you observe a Sabbath day of rest, then you will have a rest benefiting both body and soul. A day to set aside to worship God and to really fix your mind and heart unto the Lord for a concentrated amount of time. And you'll get to do this with the rest of God's people and be as a community on the same rhythm. You know, when we first moved to Japan, we moved to a city called Okazaki uh, for language school about an hour away from the rest of our teammates. And in the first part of our stay there, we didn't know one other Christian in our city except for the small Japanese church we went to on the other side of town. Even though in the beginning we barely understood anything in the entire worship service and could only string together a few basic short sentences, going to church and worshiping together with God's people was nevertheless 
incredibly encouraging and strengthening to me. Here and there, I would have to miss a, a Sunday uh, to stay home with a sick kid, and I definitely felt like I was missing a very important part of my weekly routine. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's the second giving of the law before God's people enter into the promised land. And in the second time the Ten Commandments are given in Deuteronomy 5, verse 15, it's written, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commands you to keep the Sabbath day. In other words, this, what this passage is saying is, observe the Sabbath day because you're not a slave anymore. I want us to reflect on that. You're not a slave anymore. You've been bought with the precious blood of Christ and now have been freed from your idols. If you feel as though you cannot rest, it begs the question, what are you a slave to? Why do you feel like you cannot stop working? God's giving you rest. What is it that's keeps you from resting? Why do you permit it to keep controlling you? When we look to other people or things as the ultimate solution to our problems, we're creating idols. Idols control us, and they are hard taskmasters. But the gospel frees us from our bondage to earthly masters, passions, and the compulsion of never-ending fight for progress. I find the Sabbath rest a tremendous check to the many idols we like to serve as Americans. I remember in high school, a friend of mine was doing a class project for his a AP World History class on the purpose of man. He was arguing that man's purpose was progress. Can you imagine if mankind's purpose was progress? There would always be a push to get better and better always a pressure, but that's not the God we serve. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him, right? And so in our weekly routine, after six days of work while trying to glorify God and enjoy him, we spend the first day of the week expressly committed to that purpose. But a Sabbath's rest means more than just a day of rest. When Christ is our Sabbath's rest, that means throughout all the days of the week, there is a qualitative difference. Because Christ has satisfied the longings of our heart, we work hard, but not as slaves. We should not try to keep up with the rat race of our culture. Jesus is our one-time sacrifice, he's our promised land, and he is our Sabbath's rest. Come to him, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. In this time of trials and need, rest for your souls that is found. In this time of trials and need, you need rest for your souls that is found in Christ. Not only do we need a special day set aside for rest, but you also need the qualitative difference of life every day of the week that comes from discipleship with him. Come to Christ, put it on his yoke and learn from him. Then you will not be a slave following your earthly masters, but you can have rest and life in Christ. 
Perhaps Augustine said it best when he said, Our hearts are restless, O Lord, until we find our rest in thee. Receive Jesus' invitation. Come to Christ. Put on his gracious yoke. Learn from him and find rest for your very souls. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for your word. And God, we are so thankful for the precious gift of your son, Jesus Christ, to us. We know that, as John Calvin said, that our hearts are like idol factories. We like to, to make idols, and, and they um, and serve them, but God, really, they control us. May you set us free from those idols. May we find our life and our joy in serving you and staying by your side. God, thank you for the precious gift of your son and for the life that he the life and rest that he offers us pray these things in jesus name amen